You know, hanging on the wall in my office, there are a few documents that are to serve as credentials for me in ministry. One's my degree from Bible college. One is the license of ministry from the church uh, where I was called uh, into ministry. And then one is an ordination uh, from my association that I belong to who ordained me. They examined me and ordained me. And um, usually the only time that those documents really matter, that anybody wants to see those credentials, is when I'm going to go into a jail or I need to show that I, I can visit people as clergy in a hospital or something along those lines. Most of you, uh, those of you that have come to be here in person, I don't think that any of you have gone into my office to examine those documents, to, to look at my credentials. Now, the the committee of men who invited me to come and serve as pastor here, uh, they checked into those things. But for most of you, uh, you have determined if I'm suitable or fit to be your pastor based on my conduct, my, my life, the way that I live here uh, in uh, the community and the way that I communicate God's word, if I'm faithful to the scriptures. Hopefully you're using that uh, as a benchmark uh, for uh, am I someone who's worthy to be trusted. In Luke's gospel, he's been giving us the origin story of Jesus, and now he's going to show us Jesus's credentials. And we didn't have time to get into it in, in Luke 3, but he has he's shown us that Jesus is baptized by John and that during that baptism, there is uh, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. There's this moment where God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then Luke goes into giving us Jesus's uh, genealogy, his family tree. And what Luke is showing us is that Jesus has this unique qualification that he is indeed the Son of God, but he's also a man. He's the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Mary. And what we're going to see in Luke chapter 4 is another demonstration of both Jesus' divinity and his humanity that he is both God and man. And this is important because as God and man, he has the unique qualification and ability to come and redeem us from our sins, to pay an eternal debt for sin that we all owe. And so that's what we're going to see in Luke 4. It's going to be Jesus's ID badge or his credentials, if you will. So look at Luke chapter 4 with me. We'll start reading in verse 1. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when he had ended, he was hungry. So Jesus is the Son of God, but he goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days, and he experiences hunger. Jesus came to be among us as a man. So he experienced life as we experience it. He experienced weariness and he experienced hunger. He experienced pain. He experienced a frustration and anger and joy and happiness and sorrow. He experienced all of this. And what happens in this moment is Jesus experiences a need for food, a need for sustenance. He is hungry. It's been 40 days since he has eaten and he's hungry. Now, some of us, uh, we get hangry if we go four hours without something to eat. Uh, after just a couple of hours with no snack, we are not very exemplary 
people. And when we haven't had something to eat in a few hours, Satan doesn't even have to come and tempt us to do wrong. We do it of our own accord. We say, think, and do things that are wrong because we are motivated out of this need to eat something, this hunger. When Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days, Satan showed up at that moment to tempt him. And that's what we're going to see in Luke 4, verses 3 to 13. So let's read that together. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest your foot dash against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Now, I don't know about you guys, but my credentials, my photo ID, my driver's license is not something, it's not a picture that I love to show to people because it's just not a great photo. I mean, photo IDs, maybe your work badge, your driver's license, these are kind of notoriously bad pictures. And that was before here in Indiana, you're not even allowed to smile for your driver's license photo anymore. So it looks even worse. And so usually your credentials, the photo ID that you use to get into work or to verify who you are, it's not something you want to show off. Very few people take their driver's license photo and make it their profile picture on social media. But here we have Jesus facing the devil in the wilderness. And it's not only his credentials, it not only shows us that he is different from all other men, that he is, is something divine and human both in one. It's not only his credentials, but it's also an example for us. It's a wonderful pattern for us to follow. Jesus' experience in the desert with Satan facing temptation not only is a credential that he is who he says that he is, it's a wonderful example for us to follow. Now, if you've been underlining in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that line in verse 13 that says, until a more opportune time or until an opportune time. 
This moment that we have here in Luke 4, it's not the only temptation that Jesus faces. He's going to face temptation throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and Satan would come back at other opportune times to tempt Jesus. What we have here in this moment is Satan showing up in person. We have him showing up in this moment to give a, a dedicated attack and, and, and a dedicated temptation to Jesus. It's not even the first time, really, that Satan has showed up in Luke's narrative. Because in Luke chapter 2, we see that Herod kills all of the children in the region trying to kill baby Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, we see John the Baptist is arrested by Herod's descendant, Herod, who John the Baptist has preached against, who is uh, carrying on an affair with his brother's wife. And so he preaches against adultery and he throws them in prison. And, and there are moments here where we can see the work of evil without seeing Satan himself. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, there are going to be occasions where the works of evil are made manifest. Many of the miracles that Jesus is going to perform are actually the casting out of demons that are causing people to be sick. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he's going to look at the disciples and say in Luke 22, you are my friends who have stayed faithful with me through many temptations or trials or testings. Using that, the same word that's used to refer to what Satan does to Jesus here. What we have in Luke 4 is kind of this pivotal moment where we have this drama play out between Jesus and Satan, but it's not the only time. This is a time where it is Focused, and Luke gives us a focus on this moment and these three temptations to show us the credentials of Jesus and to give us an example. But this is not the only time that Satan is work. Satan and his henchmen are at work throughout Jesus's life and ministry. And we know that to this day, Satan is at work. We believe in a personified evil. We believe that Satan is out doing a deadly work of evil in the world. And honestly, I, I think that one of the reasons that so many people in this moment, in this cultural moment right now, I think the reason that so many people have fallen for some really outlandish conspiracy theories is because they know deep down that there is an evil at work in the world, but they don't know who to blame. They don't understand who could be at, 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 at work. And, and so in their minds, there must be some group of powerful people, some group of famous people who are pulling the strings behind the scenes and making all of these evil things happen. And you and I don't have to believe some of the outlandish conspiracy theories about these powerful people communicating to one another through hand gestures and symbols because we believe that there is someone evil behind the scenes who is pulling strings and is working. We believe that there are satanic, demonic, evil forces at work. We believe that we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but rather we, we wrestle against principalities and powers of the air. There is a reason that there is so much evil out there in the world, and it's because Satan and his henchmen are dedicated to making the world burn. It's been their desire from the very beginning to wreck the creation that God made and to wreck the people that God created. That's what Satan has been doing from the very beginning. I know that we feel sometimes there must be a conspiracy at work. There is. There is a conspiracy at work. Satan is at work. 
to bring hardship, adversity, harm, and destruction to billions of people. It's like a quote I heard years ago. If you don't believe in Satan, how else can you explain that some people are in more trouble than they're smart enough to be? There are times that there are these conspiracies that people have put together these strategies in place and it's like, I don't think that they have the skills or the smarts to make that happen. But there is someone behind the scenes who is putting all of these things in motions. Oh, in motion. There is a conspiracy. And the conspiracy is that Satan is on the prowl seeking whom he may devour. Now, when Satan comes to Jesus, he makes him some offers. And one of the offers is he tells him that he will grant him all of the kingdoms of the earth, that he will give him power over all of these places. And Satan can do that because Satan has been granted authority and power here on the earth. But know that that authority and that power is not unlimited. It is short-lived. Satan only has power here on earth, and he is not omnipresent, and he is not omniscient, and he is not everlasting. He has some power right now in this moment, in this chapter, in eternity. He has some power in this moment, but that power is fleeting and it will end. And so when he offers Jesus all of the kingdoms of the earth, it could only be for a limited period of time. And Jesus does has no no desire to be a part of Satan's small kingdoms, but rather Jesus is being is building a kingdom that will be eternal. And this is the theme of all of the temptations that Satan brings our way. They are short-lived pleasures. Satan is constantly offering us things that we can enjoy now, but will be temporary and have lifelong or eternal ramifications. Over Christmas, I was talking with some of my family. Uh, we were going to order some pizza and we were talking about the best places to get pizza. And someone mentioned Little Caesars, that sometimes they get pizza from Little Caesars. And if you've gotten pizza from Little Caesars, you know that it's cheap. And what they advertise constantly is that it's hot and ready. What they don't advertise is, is it any good? It's hot and it's ready, but it's not that great. And I've heard someone say that Little Caesar's hot and ready pizza, it is only digestible as long as it's hot and ready. But it's kind of like McDonald's french fries, that as soon as it cools off, it's no longer good. I mean, a McDonald's french fry, you really have to eat them on the way home for them to be any good. If, if, you, if you wait till you get home to eat them, they've become packing peanuts. But I mean, but even talking about it right now, that sounds really good, a McDonald's french fry. It's only good for a little moment. But in that moment, it is definitely good. And Scripture doesn't say that sin isn't fun. Scripture says that sin is pleasurable for a season. And what Satan is offering Jesus here is tempting. It is alluring, but it will only be for a season. Satan is constantly tempting us to take the short-term win and give him the long-term victory. He's constantly encouraging us to lose sight of eternity, to focus on the here and now. He's constantly saying, it's hot and it's ready. You can have it right now. You can experience it right now. But the end of it is destruction. Now, 
I've always looked at the temptations that Satan brings to Jesus and thought of them in three categories that perhaps if you've been around uh, God's word, you've heard the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When he comes to Jesus when he's hungry and he says, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? That's the lust of Jesus' flesh. Jesus is a man. He is hungry. He wants bread. And so Satan says, why don't you just turn all of these stones to bread? You and I, we have these desires, these things that we want. That even if we lived on a deserted island where there were no advertisements, where there were, were no restaurants, where there wasn't another living soul, we would still crave food. We would crave and lust. We would want things that we cannot see because our flesh desires them. And so here Satan is attempting to use Jesus' humanity against him. And you tempt him with the lust of his flesh. The other is the lust of the eyes. And he takes Jesus to this place where he can see all of the kingdoms of the earth in a moment in time. And what we live in right now is a highly visual world. We live in a world where whatever platform you're watching this on, there are going to be multiple advertisements. There is $15 billion spent in advertising every year that does what? It shows us, it gives us a picture of something that we should want, something that we need, something that will help us, something that is appealing, that is appetizing, that is, that is sexual, something that causes us desire. And so the lust of the eyes, the things that we we can see. And so Satan shows Jesus all of these things in a moment in time. He shows him the kingdoms of the earth and then tells him, you can have these. And then third, he takes Jesus to the top of the pinnacle and he tempts him to jump off to prove who he is. And the third temptation is the pride of life. And just recently, I, I read from Pete Scazzaro, who wrote in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that really all of these temptations appeal to Jesus' pride in one way or another. He points out that what Satan says when he first shows up, look back at verse 3, he says, if you are the son of God. He's, he's challenging Jesus' identity. And Satan often challenges our identity because he knows that we have this insecurity about who we are. And the three challenges, they kind of go in line with those temptations. He, he says in the book, Pizzo says that Satan tempts us to live out our identity in saying, I am what I can do. He says, if you're the son of God, turn, make these stones turn into bread. And many of us are tempted to live out our identity and I am what I can do or I am what I have. He says, I can give you all of these things or I am what others think of me. You fall off, you jump off of this pinnacle and everyone will see that you are truly the son of God. I got to be honest with you. That first one, I am what I can do is a hard one for me. In my family, we've always valued hard work. We've always valued ministry. Um, so it's been ingrained in me from an early age that there is worth and value in doing God's work and working hard. Um, one of the most powerful memories I have of my grandfather who was a pastor was overhearing him say to my father, Daniel is a hard worker. 
And I'm tempted to find my identity not in Christ, but rather in my work and in my efforts and the things that I can do. Some of you, you might fall more into that second one of you find your identity in the things that you have. You're tempted to accumulate to yourself wealth and goods, to have this social standing of importance or wealth. You think that by gathering more things, by having nicer things, by having different things than other people, that you will set yourself apart, that you will establish an identity because of the devices, the cars, the house, the things that you have. Or perhaps in this celebrity and fame crazed world, you find yourself struggling with that third point of insecurity I am what others think of me. And I'm sure that all of us can relate to this when we probably all struggled with this in some form or fashion. In our highly visual world, we think of our value and how many likes our photo got, how many comments people have given us, how many compliments we got on our outfit. And because of this, we're constantly working on our outward persona. We're wanting other people to see what we can do, what we have. We're wanting to, to manipulate and to, to give this picture of that everything's great because we are worried with what other people think of us. Scazzario points out that Joe DiMaggio was, of his generation, one of the greatest ball players. So he was famous for being this incredible athlete, but he was also famous for marrying one of the most famous women. He marries Marilyn Monroe. And stories are told of Joe DiMaggio, even after he had retired from baseball, he would walk into restaurants and people would applaud. DiMaggio had this persona that he was a, a man's man, that he was the guy that everyone wanted to be, the, the man that every man wanted to be and the, the man that every woman wanted to be with. But after DiMaggio died, a biography came out about him that revealed that while on the outside and to the public world, DiMaggio had this reputation of being just incredibly popular and an and, and every, everyday man's man and just incredibly great at everything he did, those who got close to him knew that he was an angry, bitter, empty person. All of these temptations that Satan brings to Jesus and that he brings to us. All of these insecurities that he plays on to get us to take the short-term win, to take the outward win while we lose eternally and we lose internally, all of them lead to a place of emptiness and heartache and frustration and weariness and death. That's what Satan wants. That's why he comes bearing the gifts that he does. That's the reason he tries to persuade you to go down his path because he wants to lead you to destruction. And I want to point out one more of his tactics. And I, please stay with me because this is incredibly applicable to those of us who believe in God's word. I want you to notice that for his third final temptation here in Luke 4, that when he takes Jesus up to the top of the temple, that in this moment, he quotes scripture. 
Luke 4, verse 9 and 10 says, Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, there he's, he's trying to challenge his identity again, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and he quotes Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, which Eric read to us earlier. I like what Matt Brown said, There's nothing more dangerous than an evil man with a Bible verse. Satan is using God's word to tempt Jesus into abandoning God's plan. And, and hear me, if you want to, you can find Bible verses to twist out of context and justify whatever it is that you want to do. Hear, hear me, pastors never have more scripture quoted to them than when people are trying to justify their actions. People never talk more spiritually to me than when they're trying to explain away an unspiritual decision that they have made or are about to make. Satan comes at Jesus quoting Jesus himself. Satan comes to Jesus quoting God's word. And I want you to hang with me. I want you to, want you to hang with me because we're going to hinge on this point to some practical application. When, when I studied this passage as a young man, when I heard this story told in Sunday school, I always walked away with every time Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds with Scripture. So if we know Scripture, we'll have the ammunition that we need to shoot Satan out of the saddle and to be able to, to, to turn off, turn away his temptations because we know Scripture. But hear me, there have been plenty of people who knew Scripture and then used Scripture to justify going along with Satan. Satan knows plenty of Scripture too. He's quoting it here. The Bible tells us that the demons know the truth about God and tremble. You can know all of the Scripture, you can know all of the facts, and yet not apply them. There are a lot of people who know a lot of Bible and then use that Bible to convince themselves of what they're doing is okay, or use that Bible to convince others to go along with them in their sin. Bible knowledge is key. It's so important. But Bible knowledge without the presence of the Spirit, Bible knowledge without a submission to God's plan, it's dangerous. Jesus not only knew the scripture to quote to Satan, he knew God's plan for his life and he was walking in the spirit. And if we only have the Bible knowledge but we have not submitted to God's plan and we are not walking in the spirit, that tool can actually be used against us to leverage us into doing the wrong thing. I want you to look back at verse 1 of Luke 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke points out Jesus is full of the Spirit and then he's led by the Spirit. Hear me. If you're not full of the Spirit but you're full of yourself, you'll use Scripture and Bible knowledge to accomplish your own goals instead of God's goals. But if you're full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit, God's word will be a resource, a tool, a sword that the Spirit uses in your life to accomplish God's purposes. So Luke 4 verse 1 tells us that he's filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Then he's in the wilderness, this temptation happens. But then the last verse that we read, verse 14, tells us, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. 
Jesus goes and he begins his ministry, begins his preaching. He's led by the Spirit. Luke bookends this account in verse 1 and in verse 14. All of this temptation has happened in between. He tells us in the beginning he's filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And then he is powered by the Spirit, returning in the power of the Spirit. And throughout these two books, what we're going to see again and again and again is Luke is going to emphasize the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke doesn't place himself in uh, the, 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 the narrative of Jesus' life, but he does place himself in the narrative of the apostles who would take Jesus' message. And what Luke saw throughout Acts is the Holy Spirit working through these men. And some have even argued that the title for the book of Acts should not be the Acts of the Apostles, but rather it should be the Acts of the Spirit. Because what Luke saw was the Spirit carrying these men and empowering these men and women to do these works of God. Luke is going to point out the Spirit or the Holy Spirit about 60 times in his two books. Again and again, he's going to point to the fact that even Jesus himself was filled with and empowered by the Spirit. You can't follow the example of Jesus without following his example to be filled with, led by, and empowered by the Spirit of God. When Jesus had just gone through in the wilderness was actually a time for him to experience the presence of the Spirit. He went there filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, came back with power from the Spirit. And what we see again and again in God's Word is this theme of God's people going into the wilderness to there interact with God and coming back led by and powered by the Spirit. It was in the wilderness that God appeared to Moses. It was in the wilderness, the desert, that God ministered to the people of Israel in their exodus, heading to the promised land. It was in the wilderness that God won the heart of David. It was in those caves when David was on the run from Saul that God ministered to him. It was in the wilderness that God ministered to Elijah. God does some of his best work in the wilderness. John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness. And this should comfort us. Because we are in the wilderness right now. Welcome to the wilderness. This is the wilderness. The wilderness is a time that God draws nigh to us. But the wilderness is also tough. The wilderness is wild. The wilderness is hard. It was in the wilderness that Moses struck the rock in rage and lost his place in the promised land. It was in the wilderness that the people rebelled against God and attempted to return to Egypt. It was in the wilderness that David had to pretend to be crazy to save his life and would later be tempted to kill Saul, the God's anointed king, in one of those caves. It was in the wilderness that Elijah begged God to kill him. You see, the wilderness is a place that God does some of his best work, but it's also incredibly tough. And the wilderness is approving ground approving ground in several places around the country there are places called proving grounds and these are places that the u.s military test their weapons systems they're also proving grounds where car manufacturers have tracks and, and and terrain where they can test their vehicles test their prototypes 
All of these proving grounds are in the wilderness. Because if something goes wrong with that new missile or that new truck, you don't want it to be around a whole lot of people. The proving ground gives a space, a safe place, for proving if an invention will work, proving if a truck will run, proving if a missile will hit its target. If you took your invention to the proving grounds, you took your truck, you took your missile to the proving grounds, and it didn't work there, you'd be a fool if you said, well, I'm sure that it'll work once we get it into the city. I'm sure that it'll work once we get into the heat of battle. See, the proving ground is a place where what's theoretical becomes real. Proving ground is where what is really real is revealed. That's what happens in the wilderness. And in this proving ground, in this wilderness time that we are currently in, God has been revealing what's really real. God has been showing us, is it just theoretical or is it real? When I was uh, with my family for Christmas um, early in the morning, oftentimes my dad and I will be the only ones up. The kids, grandkids will stay up late and so um, they'll sleep in. And So dad and I, a lot of times in the mornings, we'll have some time to drink coffee and chat. And one morning I got up and dad was watching this special about the senior vice president from Google who broke um, the, the record for the highest parachute jump. He jumped from the stratosphere. He was 25 miles up. And he was so high for this jump that he had to wear basically an astronaut suit. He was basically wearing a spacesuit. But before they did that jump, they did test jumps at higher and higher altitudes. And one of the first ones that we were watching, he was jumping with a group of people. And it's a good thing that they did this test jump because what they found out is that wearing the spacesuit, it was so bulky that he could not grab a hold of the ripcord for the parachute and pull it far enough. He's tugging on it, tugging on it, but he can't pull it far enough to cause the chute to deploy. And one of the other people jumping with him is able to reach over and pull the chute for him. But then, because he can't reach the straps of the parachute, you know, the bulkiness of this spacesuit, he can't reach the straps of the parachute, he can't control it, and so he misses the drop zone by miles. And that's dangerous because he's in this spacesuit, and if the spacesuit runs out of oxygen, he could suffocate, and they don't know where he's at, and he can't get out of it on his own. Thankfully, a local military hop helicopter was doing, uh, uh, was doing some exercises and saw and was able to direct them where to go. That was an experiment that showed them some things they needed to change before he jumped from the stratosphere. In this moment, Jesus is about to enter into his ministry and God is proving some things about Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has made it through the wilderness experience and proven himself to be faithful. All of those other people that I talked about and their wilderness experiences have proved to be unfaithful. But I want you to hear me because I'm going to bet that during this proving time, in this proving ground, in this wilderness of the pandemic, when things have been incredibly tough, that you have not been completely faithful. And I want you to hear me that the proving ground is not a time for proving how faithful we can be, but it is a time that proves how faithful God will be. God has proven himself faithful in the proving grounds. God has proven himself faithful in the wilderness. 
And what's happening here in Luke chapter 4 is God himself in the form of a man who's hungry and weary. He faces temptation. He faces testing and trial. And he proves himself to be faithful. And then he goes back into town. And he goes into the synagogue in his hometown. And he reads scripture and he reads this. He reads this from Isaiah. This is in chapter 4 verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And in this beautiful moment, Jesus goes back to his seat and there's this quiet, everyone's kind of looking around, and Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled before you. He says, I am that one. Jesus goes through the wilderness time and proves that he is the Son of God who was come in the form of a man to proclaim liberty to captives like you and me, to heal our broken hearts. The wilderness has proven that he is the one who has come to rescue all of us, those who the wilderness has broken. God has come to rescue us and proclaim liberty and healing for us. There have no doubt been some times in your life where you've gone through hardship and you've demonstrated that you're not faithful. You've failed at the test. Know that Jesus came and passed the test so that he could bring liberty and healing for you and I. We're reading Luke and Acts, not so that we can learn how to get it right, but so that we can learn of the one who got it right for us. And in trusting in him, we experience healing and freedom.